Welcome to the Find Your Voice, Change Your Life podcast with psychologist Dr. Doreen Downing. Listen in as Doreen interviews people who felt they didn't have a voice or who suffered extreme speaking anxiety. You'll hear stories about how they struggled to speak up, what they did to find their authentic voice, and the confidence they now feel to speak up and make an impact. If you want to get started right away to find your voice, download Doreen's free 7-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com. And now, here is Doreen. Hi, this is Dr. Doreen Downing, and I'm with the Find Your Voice, Change Your Life podcast. And what I get to do weekly is to interview people who have had somewhere in their life a challenge with speaking up, speaking up in public, usually. And what we do here is to uncover maybe an episode or maybe it was a series of episodes where they had to be challenged and they just found like they couldn't find their voice. So in terms of what we're going to do today, I've invited, uh, well, do I call you Sean Tyler Foley? You can definitely call me Sean Tyler. It would make my mother more than happy, but Tyler amongst friends. And if you were to ask my wife who she was married to, Doreen, she would say Tyler. So Tyler amongst friends and you and I are that. So Tyler, if it works for you. Yes. (laughs) Good. So everybody who's listening, we get to have Tyler here today. He's been acting, guess what, has been acting in film and television since he was six years old. This is going to be exciting to hear, well, what happened (laughs) that he lost his voice? But he's appeared in Freddie versus Jason, Door to Door, Carrie, and the musical Ragtime. So Tyler is the author of the number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked, and can help you confidently take the stage and tell your story. Oh, wow, Tyler, from six years old, you know, you must just be such a natural that you stepped somewhere out and uh, felt like you were comfortable, but something must have happened. Uh, I guess I'd like to start with what happened at six that felt so good for you. Well, it was the sound of applause. <laughs> I The nice thing about being six years old when you first are introduced to stage is that it's at an age where there is no real fear, Right. Fears are the things that we learn through programming. And uh, as anybody who has a young child knows, they will go and do anything uh, first or twice or second, third times just to, to feel, you know, just to do, just to experience the world. It's how they're growing and how they're learning. And so for me at six years old, to be put on stage um, was the most magical thing on the planet. I got to be somebody else and, and play dress up and pretend. And then the, the first time I heard an audience laugh and clap at something that I had done was uh, a rush and it was thrilling. And it is a sound that I have pursued for the rest of my life. It was very formative because it, it's, I mean, it's just the most energetic feeling. I, there, I've done so many other things in my life. Um, you know, flying planes and and bungee jumping. And I even tried skydiving once. And all of those things are supposed to be these great adrenaline rushes. And none of them have lived up to the joy and the excitement that I feel when I take a stage and I get to hear, particularly at the end, where if you get a nice, good round of a standing ovation, I there's nothing else in the world that beats that. 
Yes, a robust, energetic applause. And that reminds me, since I'm a psychologist, there is a stage of development early on where children are opening up themselves and saying, hey, look at me, look at me. And the world applauds back. Usually it's the family. And I think that you must have had some pretty good mirroring early on because a lot of people trace back their fear of speaking to a time when they didn't get that applause early on. So I'm so happy that you have pointed to that moment and to that particular kind of energy so that people can say, oh, there's a possibility. Maybe they just, because of their fear, they never get that far to experience that applause. Well, and that's exactly it. As you said, it's, it's those formative years and a lot of times, and you know, working with clients that you do and the clients that I work with, um, I'm not the trained psychologist that you are. And I know that every the commonality with most of the people that I work with, they all usually pin, uh, pinpoint a moment, usually in elementary school, where they were called upon by the teacher and they didn't know the answer and everybody laughed at them. And it was that spotlight, that center of attention and not knowing that, is, that has usually been this fear, or as you pointed out, um, a little bit earlier on, more formative in that three to five range, where they've been told to be shh, you need to be quiet, you know, seen, not heard, and they've lost that their the power within their voice, or more specifically, they've given up the power of their voice. And uh, and I was, as you pointed out, blessed and so grateful that that was not the experience that I had. And I was, you're right. I was the performer when I was three, four years old. Uh, I would song and dance. And I, anytime we were having a family gathering, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, I would put on a little bit of a show while the adults would be preparing the dinner. And, and I remember being very young and receiving my first magic kit, the little, you know, three or four magic tricks that I could perform, make a, a ball float upside down and, pull a rabbit out of the hat and fun stuff like that. And, and I always would show people how to do it. And then I learned how to play piano very young too. And I've always been very musically inclined. So to have that supported and encouraged um, was a blessing because when I finally did experience my first bout of stage fright, it was foreign and uncomfortable but it wasn't my only association with speaking on stage. I had so much positive reinforcement, eight years of it, in fact, that by the time this, this first experience came, it was abnormal and was not, did not become the focus of my attention. I didn't think that's what the public eye was. To me, the public eye was this joyous thing. So this was different and weird. And I knew that I didn't want to feel that again, but I also knew that the stage wasn't what caused it. This is great as listeners are going to say, well, why are we listening to you? <laughs> because we have stage fright. But I think what you're also offering, however, to people is that there is a possibility for it to be joyous and learning from you or learning from me or whoever the teachers are that they can find that there will be the possibility of a breakthrough. But because we are talking about fear and where it felt like you didn't have a voice, let's go back to that and tell the story of what, what went on. You said you were eight years old? No, uh, I was actually 14. So I had 
eight years from the time I was six to the time I was 14 of not actually experiencing stage fright of, of, of looking forward to stages. I remember um, my music teacher actually put me in, in the fourth grade. So I think you're about nine or 10 years old at that point into a regional speech competition, just because she knew that nobody else wanted to do it. They were too shy or stage fright or, you know, had a hard time with their voice. And it was just something that I wanted to do. And so, you know, I won the regional speech competition and went on to the provincials and did that. And then at that point, there was no nationals when you're 10. It was just the regional and then the provincial. And I, I remember uh, winning the Qantas Festival that year and, and being hooked. But when I was 14, because I had been doing these speech competitions regularly and they had me memorize poems and it was just kind of part of the work. Um, I would often be asked to present at the Memorial Day presentations or um, Remembrance Day presentations. And I would read, or more specifically recite from memory in Flanders Fields. And it's you know famous poem on on World War One about the beauty after the death and the unnecessary sacrifice and the necessary sacrifice and kind of that juxtaposition of war like is it necessary and and you know on the fields in Flanders Field um, where the poppies grow row on row and it was just it was a thing that I I did regularly probably from the sixth grade to the ninth grade where I was called upon to recite this poem. And when I was 14, ninth grade, it had become old hat to me. Like it was just a thing, right? Oh, you just go and you, you do the poem. You read it and call it a day. And so um, I remember not even really going over the poem, like not even reading it or reviewing it, which was first mistake, you know, very little prep work with it. And I remember um distinctly for the first time that i'd done it usually it was just my peers right we'd have an uh, an elementary school assembly and you would have um the just the students were who i would read this to and then for this particular assembly we brought and invited veterans from the care facility that had come and so there was you know a whole series of them that were that highly they all had the medals on and they were in their dress uniform and i remember this one gentleman that they wheeled in he was in a in a wheelchair and they brought him right to the front and he was like basically right in my eye line everyone else was kind of off to the side but this gentleman was like square in front of the podium and he had these steely blue eyes and a massive medals on his chest and his uniform was tightly pressed and he had this cane and I don't know if he used the cane to get in and out of the wheelchair like from a vehicle or something like that but he had this this walking cane and I remember as I, as they were announcing me to come up and read the poem he he leaned forward on it and he just he his eyes just pierced my soul and in that instant, I remember thinking to myself, this man has seen the war. He's experienced loss. Who am I? I'm 14. I don't know about war. I've never even, at that point, I barely held a gun. You know, the most I had done was held a 22 
shooting gophers on my farm, right? Like this man actually pointed a weapon at another human being and potentially took their life. If anything, he's seen life lost around him. I have not. And all of these thoughts are running through my head. And what should have come out was in Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid amid the guns below. And what actually came out was dead silence. (gasps) Oh, because I couldn't remember in Flanders fields. I couldn't get the the beginning of the poem and I couldn't get the rhythm and I couldn't find the, the bit. And so I remember being like the poppies, the poppies. And that's all I could think of was the poppies and knowing that that isn't how it started. And this man is looking at me and, and now all of a sudden I'm seeing everyone else who's looking at me and I don't know the words. And thankfully my vice principal, um, came to my aid and kind of brushed me aside. He had a copy of the poem. He's like, here, go read it. You know, and he, and I got to look at it and kind of, he did a little other introduction and then brought me back on and I was able to read it from the page. But it was a beautiful lesson for me because again, I had been spoiled eight years. I'd never experienced anything like that. And now I understood what people were talking about, about stage fright. Like everything that they talked about happened. I'd gone flush. I, and I didn't know how your body could be hot and cold at the same time. My hands were freezing cold. My face and my ears were flushed red hot. My heart was beating a thousand miles a minute. And yet I had absolutely no saliva in my mouth, but somehow I was still spitting a lot. And I, none of these things made any sense to me until I was able to look back on it in reflection many, many years later onto what some of those triggers were, why I actually experienced that. And it was an experience that I have dedicated my life to never feeling again. Yes. Oh my, what a description that um, steely eyed veteran in front of you is. It sounds like that was the trigger and you comparing yourself and feeling like I, it, it seems like it goes beyond being judged by this man. Uh, it, it's something about the comparison and knowing you were less than him. I'm, I'm, well, and what it was so in reflection, and you're right, like it, uh-huh. it starts with that judgment piece. As you yeah. and I both know, that's usually where that fear of public speaking comes from. It's that fear of judgment. And for me, what it was, was I, I definitely felt less than in that I, and I think my concern was that I hadn't given the poem the gravitas that it deserved. Because when I was doing it before, I was just saying words and I said it pretty. But they were just words that didn't have really true meaning to me. And I think for the first time, it occurred to me that the author of the poet, John McRae, had walked Flanders Fields when he penned this and was taken by the loss. And it was in that recognition that I had not prepared. Right? Like, what do these words mean? And what do these words mean to somebody who has actually been there and who has actually seen it? And I felt so insignificant in that moment. 
and and frankly ashamed that I hadn't given it the gravity that it deserved um, or the somber reflection perhaps that I was I and it was a whole bunch of projection onto it and uh, but again great learning lesson <laughs> right and I think that in sharing it the way that you have and even uh, what we've just done dissected a little bit to pinpoint what the uh, problem was for you in standing in front of uh, the audience. And it was really the audience of one man who, <laughs> who uh, actually made the trigger for you. And uh, then to also know that it was uh, what you just said, that it really had something to do with preparing also, which is, seems to be one of the lessons in your book that you teach people about how to, you have several P's, prepare, practice, what else are they in your book? Let's move to what you teach then. Well, so the, there, we have the four P's and we have the five P's and they're, they're different than anybody who's ever um, <laughs> gone through. Uh, I, again, I grew up, in a rural community. So I was part of the 4-H club. And so the five P's come from 4-H and those are plan, prepare, practice, present. And I've added the fifth one, which is participate. And for me, I think it's that fifth one that is, that is really key because participating in your talk is important. Like how do you show up and how do you work with your audience? Because ultimately, you know, in what we're doing right now, people are coming in to listen to find your voice, change your life, probably to do those two things. <laughs> and it's incumbent on me as an invited guest to your platform to serve your audience to the best of my ability. And the drawback to this medium that you and I have is that we can't interact directly with the audience. So I'm relying on you to be a conduit for your audience for me to interact with them. So how I am going to participate in this conversation is actively listening to the questions that you have, trying to present thoughtful information, and then be vulnerable with my responses. Give more than just the cursory information. If I was in a live scenario, you know, I would invite questions from the audience. I would ask them to share how they are feeling. Um, all of these things are, are critical in a, in a truly good presentation. And the only way that you can effectively do that is by doing the other four P's, your plan, your prepare, your practice, and then the actual presentation itself, which requires your participation. So those are, those are my five P's that I discuss in the book. Oh, well, I think the one that you highlighted just a second ago, participate, and then specifically how you gave some hints about what that means is to really be somebody who is engaged and curious and involved, not only before you show up at whatever you've been invited to, which it sounds like you have done. Thank you very much, by the way. <laughs> but to also, once you're there, 
to be willing to have a heart to heart with whoever it is in front of you, whether it's a hundred people, a thousand people, or just a couple of people at a meeting, or just me <laughs> with uh, you and I together here, creating a moment for our listeners. And I think already, my goodness, um, your ability to go into such graphic details about a personal experience, I think that will wake up people to know that, oh, other people have experienced the kinds of things that Tyler talked about, like the, the sweat and the, the whole image of cold hands and a flush, a hot red face and cold hands. And, uh, you know, there's so many other physical sensations that people feel when they think, not only think, but, you know, when they find themselves in a speaking situation and go to fear. So uh, you've written a book and the power to speak naked. <laughs> and so tell us about that because people are probably going, what does that mean? <laughs> well, and I'm glad you asked because it does have uh, many layers to the title. Uh, the first one is poking a little bit of fun at what, in my opinion, is the worst advice given to people when they're trying to public speak. And that is to picture your audience in their underwear or picture your audience naked. To me, it's, um, it's such a disservice to everyone involved in that scenario. It's, it's not doing you any good. It's, it's wasting brain power. It's, it's not really honoring or servicing your audience in any particular uh, fashion. Um, and frankly, I find it insulting and a little bit degrading to your audience too. Like, why would you try to draw? I think that the nexus of that advice is to try and draw comfort from somebody else's discomfort, which is, um, I don't know if it's narcissistic or if it's masochistic or if it's both, but either way, it's not serving your audience. One of the best ways to serve your audience is to love your audience. And one of the best ways to love your audience is to empower them, not to strip it away. And so I do not like that advice. And when we were coming up with a title for the book, somebody had brought up that as, a, as advice. And I had gone on a tirade, very similar to what I just did. And I said, I would rather empower you to speak naked on stage than for you to waste even an ounce of brain matter on picturing your audience naked. And as soon as I said it, everybody's like, the power to speak naked, that's good. And then as we explored kind of what that meant to me, it really started to unfold. So on a, on a next level, just below the surface of, you know, the poking fun, I believe that people should be able to give a naked presentation. And by that, I mean stripped of all gimmick. So you don't need the PowerPoint. You don't need props. You don't need AV. A lot of your listeners who are listening to Find Your Voice right now are, are just listening, right? There's no video component to, to a portion of your audience. They're listening to this on a device, on a podcast. And yet I would hope that the conversation that we're having, Doreen, is, is serving them that they're getting value out of this, and yet they have no visual to go with it. And that's the true power of communication. When I can give a talk, I can give a presentation, and I can keep you captivated, even without the gimmicks. I don't need a big presentation screen. I don't need props. I don't need all of the, the fluff, right? Take it back to primal days when I would stand, not even at a lectern, 
but just in front of a group and say, this is what I've discovered. This is how I feel. This is something to know and have a, a real true naked presentation. The surface below that is that I strongly feel that the things that we're afraid to say are what our ideal audience needs to hear. And when we covet this information and we keep it close to our chest and we don't express those things, not only are we doing ourselves a disservice, and again, being a trained psychologist, you will know this far better than I do. I know this through intuition. You know it through actual training. Um, that can have negative health effects on us when we try to keep those things bottled up. And there is a catharsis in letting some of that information go. And I want to be really clear with your audience. I'm not saying to go out and start spilling your deepest, darkest secrets. That is not the intent of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is even in telling just a simple story, you're probably holding back minor details that could add so much rich context to it, but you're afraid of the judgment that will come if you say, this is how I felt about this, or this is what I saw, or this is what I experienced. But when we share those details, that's where we find the humanity in the story. It's where we find connection. It's where we find empathy. It's where we find our sympathy. All of these things come when we can humanize ourselves by speaking the raw naked truth, the reality of the situation, how we experienced something, as opposed to the um, doctored, redacted, and edited version that maybe we want the world to see because it looks polished. And so I want people to be able to speak the raw naked truth to their audience because that's where we truly find change. Uh, that's where we can find acceptance. And that's when you can really actually move and make somebody better. Uh, through presenting an idea that is powerful. And then on the very, very deep surface, I would love, love, if I was so effective as a public speaking coach that one of my clients one day could take the stage in the emperor's new clothes and never care because they were so confident in their messaging and they were so engaging with how they did it that nobody would pay attention to the fact that they were stark naked on stage and they would yet instead be enraptured by the power of their voice that they never even noticed that they could walk on stage and walk off stage completely naked and have people go, that was incredible. Did you see his outfit? No. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> the power of his presence. Oh, my. I, the, all those levels, four levels. And I know that the first one that, that was kind of degrading of your audience about seeing them as naked. I know that a lot of people I work with and even myself, I would say that was what I felt when I was on a stage and people were looking at me is that I felt undressed. I didn't feel like I had enough layers to cover over me. And so this uh, layers that you talk about from the title of your book, The Power to Speak Naked, I think illustrate not only that first level of, oh, you can be in front of an audience and feel like you are there more fully sharing your not only just your information, but your presence, your love, your heart, your, your humanity. And I think that your explanation is going to go far today to help people 
see those kinds of opportunities, what is available to them by speaking, and it's layered. <laughs> well, and, and as you said, there is an abundance of opportunity. Anytime you find yourself censoring your voice, that was an opportunity to speak up. And it doesn't have to be in the boardroom. It doesn't have to be in front of a lectern. These are the everyday conversations we're having with our spouse, with our child, with our loved one, with colleagues at work. And again, I'm not saying that that you need to suddenly have this blunt honesty that can all borderline be offensive. What I'm saying is be conscious of why you're feeling the need to censor those words or to omit details because it's in those tough conversations where we have the most growth, where we have the most change. And if you can get comfortable in the one-on-one scenarios, it's amazing what you can then accomplish on the one-on-many. You know, one of the greatest gifts that I get to receive is when I have trained somebody who has a powerful message to be able to take the stage and really impact multiple lives instead of just the one-on-one work that that they're used to doing. And that ripple effect when when they can affect change in a in the way a group of people think as opposed to just an individual thinks is powerful. But it starts with those, you know, being able to um have conversations in the right way with the people closest to us. And if you can have those, those are usually the harder ones to have than to speak to a group. A whole bunch of strangers, they're usually on your side and you're the authority. So it's it's real easy at that point to step into that role once you've become accustomed to the feeling and uh, and in part change those conversations are the easy ones to have. I'd much rather speak to a crowd of a thousand than have to have a tough conversation with my wife or my mom. Yes. And I think what you've just done, though, is to say, hey, folks, you may be feeling like you can't speak in public, but let's start somewhere else. Are you really free to be more fully yourself expressed in one-on-one relationships, your personal relationships? Let's let's find the ways in which you hold yourself back any place, any time. And the other thing that you touched that you mentioned and it, it brings to my mind is uh, celebrating the successes that you have when you do speak in public, because we actually speak in public a lot and don't realize it. Yes. The next time you go to a restaurant and order food, if you don't know who your wait staff is, you just spoke to a stranger in public. That's public speaking to strangers. Like, give yourself a clap on the back. And a lot, and it, you know, I say this to a lot of my clients and they kind of roll their eyes. They're like, oh, that's so ridiculous. But I'm like, no, but you've claimed to be, have this crippling fear of public speaking, terrifying fear of public speaking. And yet you've been to a restaurant three times this week, have been into the bank once, have been grocery shopping three or four times and checked out because you didn't get arrested for shoplifting. All of these required some form of public vocalization or speaking in public. And as soon as you can frame it that way, then they understand that they're not actually afraid of public speaking. And that it's a misdiagnosis. I often aching it, and forgive me because with a medical background, this is definitely oversimplification. But it's like having heartburn and diagnosing yourself with a heart attack, and you're running around trying to find defibrillators when all you need is a little bit of Pepto Bismol. And these people, and most of my clients are have started with this this terrifying 
fear of public speaking. And the reality is they're actually afraid of public judgment. And it's real easy to tackle that fear of public judgment as soon as they recognize that as soon as they were given the opportunity to speak, that made them the authority. And nobody shows up to something because they don't want to be there. You know, even if you're, in, if you are asked, if you are told, voluntold at your office that you have to give a presentation and everybody else has to attend said presentation, you were picked because you were the subject matter expert or they would have picked somebody else. And the people who are being forced to come are still choosing to be there. So at best, they're passively indifferent to your message. All you have to do is show up and, and inform them of what you need to do. Or they wouldn't have gone, right? People do not do the things they don't want to do. They would have come up with an excuse. I have a dentist appointment or I've got this luncheon meeting. I can't, I've got a client thing. I can't come to the meeting. They will not show up. So if the audience is there, the audience is on your side. And if you were asked to do it, you are the subject matter expert. And now it becomes a place of power as opposed to vulnerability. And you just have to show up and deliver. I hope people just heard that a place of power. And I think that, well, it feels like we could go on and on. We're nearing the end and I I will need to bring this to a close, but the place of power as opposed to uh, not having power. And I think that what you've talked about today is really related to people finding the power within, which they already have. It's just that they layer it over with fear. And what you're saying is, let's let's look at each layer of fear and confront it. And I feel like you've done that a lot today with uh, facing it and covering it and finding ways that uh, we are already naturally every single day doing public speaking. Well, and I like to say that the best way to find confidence is through competence. And competence actually has a legal definition, adequately qualified, suitably trained with sufficient experience to perform the task with minimal or no supervision. And if we take that into consideration, what we need is that experience. Mm -hmm. And so many people try to minimize or reduce the experience that they actually have public speaking instead of acknowledging the wins that they've already accomplished. And when you look at it from that lens and perspective, you have tons of public speaking experience. So now it's just a matter of honing that craft and feeling more comfortable in doing it. You listen, everybody, you have tons of experience with public speaking. And that's uh, Tyler Foley today talking to us about his journey, having started as somebody who really loved it and thrived on applause, kind of had a a moment where it became evident to him that he could get afraid (laughs) and then learned a lot about that fear and now teaches people. And could you tell us uh, how how people can get a hold of you, how they can find you, Tyler? Well, Doreen, um, before I tell them that, uh, I would ask that if they're getting value out of listening to Find Your Voice and Change Your Life, if they're coming back regularly, the best thing that they could do so that you can get guests like me so that I can plug my website and and how to reach me is to give you a five-star review. So if they could do me a favor right now, just hit pause on whatever device they're on and maybe give a mention about a favorite episode that they had or a favorite takeaway that you've given, something that you've specifically done to help them get over their fear of public speaking. So if they could give a a little nugget or something, write a review, like a good proper one instead of just giving five stars and walking away, be a little bit specific about how this 
uh, show has served you. And then if you can leave that five-star review for find your voice and change your life, then you can unpause and go to seantylerfoley.com, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. And you will find everything there. We've just recently launched a free Facebook group where I'm coming on once a week for 20 minutes and just giving you everything, everything that we would charge in our seminars, everything that we would charge for in my private coaching. Uh, in the book, we are taking everything that I've put together over the last 35 years of public speaking and giving it to you for free in the Facebook group. So you can get it there. You can also download a copy of The Method which is an 11-page PDF, five insider secrets that I've put together over the last 35 years of public speaking. Um, and you can find my speaking calendar. You can find episodes of podcasts I've been on, including Find Your Voice, Change Your Life. Everything, everything is on seantylerfoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Doreen, for having me on this show. It was my absolute joy and pleasure to be of service to you and your audience today. Well, that's exactly what I feel that you've done is you've actually represented exactly what you're telling people to participate fully. And then by having them pause and, and uh, like the show and do whatever they can to promote it, it feels like you are a living example of what, what do they say? Walk your talk, is that? Or talk yeah. your walk? walk you're the doing talk. it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and I, I feel it's incumbent on somebody with a spotlight the way that you and I have to do the things that we preach. Uh, if you don't, then <laughs> who's going to follow you? And I know that the only way that I can have an impact is to get people to see that their voice matters. And that's why I, I was so grateful to be on your show, because it is the message that you have, that you can change your life if you can find your voice. And not only find your voice, but know that when you speak, that you'll be heard. I mean, it's the dedication that I have in my book. You know, most of what I do is driven by my love of my daughter. And so my dedication in the book says, may you always have the courage to speak up for what you believe in and the confidence that your voice will be heard and, and to have the opportunity to come on your show with a, a very similar message was um, a joyous moment for me. So thank you for the opportunity and the platform. You're welcome. Those two words I'll take, courage and confidence. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for being with us today for this episode of Find Your Voice, Change Your Life. Each person during interviews shares what has helped them find their voice. You can learn from these guests and find your voice so you can be confident to speak up and speak out. And remember to download Doreen's free seven-step guide to fearless speaking at Doreen7steps.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll return next time. Until then, goodbye for now.